Now, as always, I did forget one notice, um, so I'll just catch up on that one now. Uh, Andrew Adamson, or the Adamson clan, are going to be throwing a, uh, a lovely lunch for everybody on Good Friday. Anybody who would like to come along to their house, uh, it's going to be baked potatoes, I hear. So if people would like to bring along some drinks or a dessert, or have you got some fancy, some fancy toppings to go on and bake potatoes, feel free to come along and chip in, and it should be a lovely time to spend together. We'll be having our, our Easter services at the usual times, which, um, that will test me. Is it 9.30 Good Friday? <laughs> you just do what you're told? I reckon it is. I'll, I'll have it written down next week, so we'll have it in all certainty. We'll be having our dawn service up on the hill, starting from, uh, you know, rock up at 6, and because uh, it's going to be an um, earlier sunrise. So we're going to have our dawn service up there. We'll figure out how we're going to do breakfast back here, but you can't have a dawn service and not have breakfast back at the church afterwards, I reckon. And then we'll be having our Easter Sunday regular service as well. Before we get into the Word, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to make yourself known, to make God known to us that you have shown us the Father, that we have seen you full of grace and truth. We pray that as we come into this time of Easter, that we might be reminded again of our first love, of what drew us to you in our faith, that this Easter we might be reminded of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about some of you, I got a bit surprised by how close Easter was getting. There were so many things to do and so many things to finish off and then Amy was after me to get all these details sorted out about the dawn service and I'm like, oh, that's ages away yet. And then I looked at my calendar and it's two weeks away. So thanks, Amy. Um, it snuck up on me a little bit this year. I don't know, some of you, it might not have snuck up on you so much if you are doing a Lent uh, season to... to which is, I think, something that Christians are not required to do by any stretch, but it can be a good way to not get taken by surprise by Easter and to spend that time leading into Easter just being reflective and thinking about what it all means. Uh, so some of you might have been doing that, but for the rest of us, I thought it might be good to prepare ourselves for Easter over these next two weeks. I have, have a couple of sermons to, to lead us into what Easter is all about. And next week we'll focus on Palm Sunday because of it being Palm Sunday. But today I wanted to look at how Jesus prepared his disciples for Easter, how he prepared them for what was going to come. So our passage today is from Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. 
Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. We find this passage not even halfway through Luke's gospel. And yet from this point in Luke's gospel onward, Jesus is heading to the cross. The... um, those who've written about Luke's gospel, and indeed the gospels in general, have somewhat tongue-in-cheek described them with as passion narratives, as it, the passion as in Easter, what happened at the cross. Passion narratives with an extra long introduction. Because more than half of the book is gearing up for Easter. More than half of the book is Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And then this is what happened along the way. And then this is what happened in Jerusalem. And then this is where it all came together, at the cross. Our passage comes in the context of a period of busy ministry. Jesus has been working hard with the disciples. He sent the disciples out on mission trips in pairs, going and spreading the good news. And then they've come back and reported how that all went. And then there was the feeding of the 5,000. And that would have been an amazing day. It would have been a very busy day. Uh, preaching that and then trying to feed 5,000 people. And so Jesus has gone away with his disciples for a time to rest, a time to recuperate. He's taken them on a prayer retreat to spend a bit of time recovering before they make their way to Jerusalem. He's gone away with just a small number of his disciples He's gone away in private and yet we see that the disciples are with him. So when it says in private, it doesn't mean that he was off by himself, but that they've gone away from the crowds and just a few of his, just just the core group of disciples are with him. And after prayer, after the time that they've spent in prayer, Jesus asked them about his identity. What do they understand? What do the people understand? You've spent time working around in the crowds of people, bringing the sick to to Jesus to be healed and running around in the crowds feeding people the food that Jesus has miraculously uh, made for them. What have they been saying? Who do they say I am? And so Peter reports that back. They're saying that Elijah or John the Baptist or some prophet, you know, back from the dead. And it's, it's worth noting that even though they hadn't quite pegged Jesus for exactly who he was, those, were, those showed the very high regard that the crowd had for Jesus, that they're putting him in the category of people like Elijah 
and John the Baptist, who they had great regard for. But Peter asked them, well, that's what the crowd say. Who do you say I am? And do you understand yet who I am? And we discover that they do somewhat. Peter understands. You are God's Messiah. And we know from the other Gospels, Jesus is pleased with, uh, with Peter realising this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for you know, flesh and blood have not revealed that to you. You've only recognised that because God has shown that to you. Jesus was pleased that Peter understood that he was the Messiah. And yet the first thing that he does is tells them all to keep it a secret. Because Jesus knows that even though they might recognise who he is as the Messiah, they don't yet understand what that means. And Jesus knows that others don't understand what that means. I haven't got it in our outline, but there was another point in his, his ministry where a crowd formed around Jesus and they wanted to make him the king. They wanted to start a revolution, throw out the Sanhedrin and the Romans and install Jesus as their king. And as they're, you know, whipping themselves up into a fervour, Jesus disappears because that's not what he wants. But that's what a lot of people were expecting the Messiah to be. They're expecting a Messiah like David. He was to be David's son. He was to rule on the throne of David. So they were expecting him to be like David, to be the king of a kingdoms like David's with, you know, soldiers and chariots and rule over a, a distinct land with distinct borders. They were expecting a king, a king like David. And we see that in the request, this isn't in this passage, but when James and John come to Jesus... And they ask him, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left when we come into your kingdom? What they thought they were going to Jerusalem for was for Jesus to become the king. And when Jesus became the king in Jerusalem, they were going to be the key people in his kingdom. They were going to be his top men, his chief lieutenants. That was what the disciples expected. So the minute Jesus, find, Jesus knows that they know he's the Messiah, the first thing he has to do is teach them what that means. The first thing he has to do is to show them about his purpose. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Well, he tells them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now the disciples didn't understand that straight away. They followed a teacher who taught many things in parables. And so likely they figured that this talk of being killed and raised from the dead was another parable. But it wasn't. Jesus was telling them exactly what had to happen. And it did have to happen. That's the way Jesus worded it. This is what must happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
He must be rejected and killed. The only way there can be a kingdom, the only way anybody can be in his kingdom was for their sins to be forgiven. The Bible teaches us none of us are able to be with God, to be restored to God, to be able to live with God forever because of our sins. The Bible teaches us everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death and separation from the God who made us. So the only way that there can be a kingdom of God is for somebody to deal with that sin. That sin needs to be dealt with and so the Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must be killed. When Jesus starts talking like this about what it means for him to be the Messiah, he's warning his disciples, my path is not what you think it is. The road that we're going down is not what you think it is. You need to understand the cross, he's telling them, because the cross reshapes our entire understanding of who Jesus is. He's not just a just and wise teacher who teaches us nice ideas about how we can live a nice life. He's not just a good man who is a good example to follow. He's not just a king who will bring benefits for those who give their allegiance to him. But he is a saviour. He is the one who comes to die for his people. He is the one who loved his people so much that he would face not only death but the wrath of God against all of our sins poured out on the cross in our place. When we look at this, we know that to Jesus the cross was not a surprise or a tragedy. He didn't think he was leading some great revolutionary movement until the moment he got hung up on a cross and said, hang on, this isn't how it was supposed to happen. This is what Jesus had been planning from the beginning. Jesus chose it and he set his face to Jerusalem and he walked resolutely towards it. That shows the measure of his love. That shows us the kind of man our saviour is. That shows us the greater love. Greater love has no one than this lay down their life for their friends. By this we know what love is, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus says to his disciples, you need to understand what I'm doing for you in order to follow me. And so having established then that that is the path that Jesus is heading down, he tells the disciples, if you're following me, this is the path you're going down too. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Taking up your cross is not a nice picture. Taking up your cross is not a picture of small annoyances and small problems. 
in that world that the disciples were living in, they had seen enough crosses to know that it wasn't pretty. They'd seen enough people crucified in the rebellions that had happened against Rome to know what it looked like to take up your cross. There's no turning back from taking up your cross. It's an image of total commitment. Jesus is telling his disciples, you're not following me to become princes in this world. You're not following me so that when we get to Jerusalem, you'll have the chief place in my physical kingdom of of Israel here on this earth and luxury and all of the benefits of being the princes of this world. If the path, Jesus says, if the path I'm on leads to the cross and you're following me, that's where your path is going too. Jesus showed us a path of love for God and a path of love for people. And love, as everyone who's ever loved anyone knows, love requires sacrifice. Love requires self-denial. Love for our neighbour means having to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. Love for God means that we put our trust in Jesus. And so Jesus brings these couple of ideas together. The way he rattles them off one after another suggests that he sees them in very similar ways. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain even the whole world and yet lose their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. The way they're brought together suggests that he's seeing those in a very similar light. Being those who are trying to save their life is the same as those who are ashamed of Jesus. Those who are trying to gain the world and forfeiting their very self. And it raises a question of what do we expect in this world from following Jesus? What do we expect from being his people and following him? Do we expect an easy life? Do we expect to be happy all the time? Do we expect prosperity and comfort? Do we expect, in short, the things that the disciples were expecting that Jesus had to teach them was not the way things were going? Jesus shows us what we can expect if we follow him. We can expect that some people will reject us. We can expect that some people, even those who we love, will hate us. We can even expect that at times there can be persecution. That doesn't mean, taking up our cross doesn't mean that everybody who follows Jesus will be literally put to death on a cross. Not everyone has to be martyred to faithfully follow Jesus. But it does recognise that it can happen. People can die for following Jesus. And even knowing that that's just a chance, not even a certainty, we should know that that's part of the path that we're on. What can we expect from following Jesus? We can expect temptation 
to be ashamed of Jesus, or even just even if it's just some part of Jesus' teaching that isn't very popular in our world today. And we're, so we're tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and go quiet. What can we expect if we follow Jesus? We can expect Jesus' priorities will sometimes challenge our priorities and the things that we thought were important. What can we expect if we follow Jesus? We can, be, we can expect to be loved with a love that would go to the cross for you, that would bear all of your wrongdoing, all of your sins, all of the ways that you have fallen short of the glory of God, all of the ways that you have rejected God's control of our lives and chosen to go your own way, all of the ways that we've hurt the people around us. We can be expected Uh, We can expect to be loved with the love that would bring forgiveness for all of that at the cross. What can we expect if we follow Jesus? We can expect grace and forgiveness when we fall short. Just look at this description that Jesus gives. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And yet what do we read just a little bit later in the Gospel? That when Jesus is arrested, the disciples all have a choice to try and save their life or to lose it for Jesus. And what do they do? They run. They choose to save their lives. And when Jesus is on trial... And Peter has followed along at a distance to see what will happen. And people start saying, hang on, you were with him. He was ashamed. He denied it. I tell you, I don't know this man. The disciples failed the test that Jesus put here. And yet, he forgave them. He restored them when they asked for forgiveness, when they came, when they saw him after he had been raised from the dead, he restored them and showed them grace and forgiveness. What can we expect if we follow Jesus? We can expect the kingdom of God, which is where Jesus finishes off with this appeal to the disciples. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about how this following him in this life will not always be easy. Now, that doesn't mean it might never be easy, that there might never be good things in our life. I think sometimes we can take that too far so that we think that any comfort is sin or anything that's good in our lives is wrong. But we do expect that if we follow Jesus, our lives will not be easy. They will not... There will be many times in our lives where it would be much easier to not be a Christian, to not be following him. 
But Jesus finishes on this talk about the kingdom of God because he is saying this is what makes it all worth it. This is where it is all going. This is what the cross is for. This is what I'm going to die for you for. So that you can come and live with me in a kingdom that has no end. Because of the cross that Jesus was setting his face towards, we can be forgiven. Death can be defeated. And we can enjoy the life that God created us for. Jesus will come one day in his glory. That is what he said. In his glory and with the glory of the Father and the angels. All the brokenness in this world will be undone. We can live in justice and peace and love and relationship with the God who created us to love and be loved by him. Jesus tells them, you will see this. Now that is a hard thing to understand. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. But all of them are dead now and the kingdom of God has not come in all its fullness yet. What Jesus has in mind, I think, here is his resurrection. You will see the beginning of the kingdom of God. Because that is what Easter is. Easter is the kingdom of God, that end time when all of, pe- all of the people who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. That is the end times being brought back into our time. That's the beginning of the kingdom of God as death is defeated and Jesus is raised back to life again. The kingdom of God is started. It's not finished yet. It'll be finished when he comes again. But it has begun. And so we who follow him will be with him forever, loved and set free. So this Easter, know the path that Jesus walked for us was not an easy one. In love, he went to the cross for us. And although it will not be easy to follow him, know that the benefits that the good that will be, the glory that will be revealed in us far outstrip anything we might face as we take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, it's true that we cannot understand who you are without understanding the cross. We thank you that you set your face to the cross. That you knew what was coming and walked towards it out of your great love for us. I pray that you will help us to follow in your footsteps. Our life may not end in martyrdom 30 odd years of age as it did for Jesus. But we know that when we follow you, there will be times that will be hard. That when we're faithful to you, we will face difficulties in this life. Let us count the cost. Take up our cross and follow you, no matter where it takes us, because of the hope that you call us to.
In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.